the First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. But today we are wrapping up our series, uh, finally titled Christianity 101, and the subtitle of this series is What We Believe and Why, and what we've been talking about to this point um, is... In fact, the whole point of this series is to give you a, a, a foundational bottom line understanding of what you absolutely need to believe as a Christ follower, what you need to believe to be saved and then, and then to follow Jesus. And so what we've been talking about is essentially, you know, very, very basic Christianity, okay? Christianity at its foundational level. And I'm not going to say that we've covered everything there is to know about Christianity because there's a lot, but we're covering at least the foundational things. And so the first thing we talked about as we opened up this series is simply this, it is is not what you do that saves you. It is what you believe. You are saved by grace through faith. And, and it, you know, or as Paul had told the jailer who asked, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You're saved by what you believe and not what you do. And that's what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then week two, we began talking about the object of our belief, okay? I mean, if we're saved by what we believe, what is it we must believe in? What is the object of that belief? Well, the object of our belief is Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. The object of the faith, what our faith rests on, is the person of Jesus Christ. And in him, we must place our trust and our hope. And so we began, in, in week two, we began to look at, you know, who Jesus is, who this Jesus is that we must believe in to be saved. And so we began to look at the historical perspective of who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus, you know, in history? Okay, and, and as we looked at that, we came to terms that there were four things that we absolutely need to believe and know about the historical Jesus. And they are this, simply, that he was born of a virgin, and that he lived a perfect life, and that he died on a Roman cross, and then he was raised physically and literally back to life. Okay? And as and incredible as these things sound, and as incredible as these details are, these are not things that are from legend. They're not details from a myth. They are actual historical facts, and these are the things that actually happened, and these are the things that you must believe about the history or the Jesus of history. Okay, If you're going to know him well enough to trust him, you need to know these things and believe these things. And then week three, we started talking about what God himself tells us about Jesus. What is, it, what is that God himself says in his word? What does he reveal to us about Jesus? You see, beyond the historical Jesus, Jesus Christ, okay, beyond the, the historical side of him, there's this his very nature that makes him who he is. And we begin to talk about the fact that Jesus is indeed God, okay, that he is 100% God, and that he also came here in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that means that he is 100% God and 100% man, and when we come to understand that there are five things that we really need to believe about the nature of Christ, five truths about the nature of Christ that we need to know and embrace, and they are, number one, is Jesus has two natures, okay, he is, has a human nature and he has a divine 
divine nature. He is both God and man. And then the number two, that these natures are full and complete. Jesus isn't 50% God or 50% man. He isn't 80% God and 20% man. He is 100% fully God, 100% fully man. And then number three, these natures, even though that he is fully those things, they still, they still remain distinct. His human nature is not divine and his divine nature is not human. And number four, even though that he has these distinct full natures, he's still one person, one unified person with these two natures. And then number five, what is true of one of his natures is true of Jesus as a person, meaning that in his divine nature, okay, Jesus is the creator of all things, which means we can say literally that Jesus the person created everything. Okay, But in his human nature, Jesus was born into the world and into creation, which means Jesus the person then, we can say, literally had a birth into this world. Okay, And I know that it kind of sounds complicated, but it's the truth that's revealed to us by the Bible of who Jesus really is. And then in week three, since we answered the who question, you know, who is it that saves us and who is it Jesus, you know, who's this Jesus that brings salvation, all right, that we then turn in week four to ask the why question, okay? Why do we need to be saved in the first place? Why do we need salvation? Why did God have to come to the earth, you know, to die for my sins? Why was that necessary? You see, just as important is who that saves us and just as important as what we must believe about that who that saves us, okay, we need to understand why we need to be saved in the first place. Because Jesus did not come to die on the cross so that you could have a better life. That's not why he came to die. He did not come to die so you can have more stuff or be a better person or feel better about yourself um, or so that you could, there would be peace on earth in this lifetime. Those things are not the reason why he came. Those things are too small of a thing for him to die. Jesus died on the cross to save mankind from his greatest problem. He died to save mankind from his sin. Our sin is the reason why he had to die. Your sin, my sin, are the reasons why Jesus had to die. And so our understanding of sin is essential to our faith because the truth is who God is will never be relevant to us. It will be forever irrelevant to us until we understand why he had to die. Our understanding of sin is essential to our faith. And so there are four things that we talked about we must believe about sin to be saved. Number one, sin's a real thing. That it's not just a made-up thing. Okay? That it actually is real. Because it's real, it has consequences. Meaning that sin causes death. It causes the deaths of families and relationships and careers and finances and it causes physical death and it also causes um, uh, the, the, the death physically of people but it also most importantly causes uh, what's called spiritual death or the separation of, uh, from, of, of ourselves from God in eternity that we will eternally spend time our time away from God there's a huge consequence to us okay and then we must understand the consequences of sin and then we must understand that we're a sinner that we're all sinners you're a sinner I'm a sinner there's not any one of us who's not a sinner and to make things worse you can't fix it there's nothing you absolutely cannot do to fix it. You cannot save yourselves. You are incapable of saving yourself. That's why God had to come to earth to die for you. Your sin is so bad that you cannot fix it. And because of that, you need a Savior. 
That's what you need to know and believe about sin. It is real. It has consequences. In, and, and you are, in fact, a sinner, and you yourself you know, cannot save yourself from your sin. That is the bad news that you have to come to grips with. Uh, because without the bad news, you can't really fully embrace the good news. And then last week, uh, we uh, dealt with the implication of these things. Okay? A very unpopular imp- implication of these things in the world. An unpopular implication in our culture and unpopular even among some who call themselves Christians. Because, um, uh, but as unpopular as it, this may be, as unpopular as this truth may be, the truth remains simply this. There is only one God, okay? And there has... And that's all there ever has been. There has never been a God before him. There will never be a God after him. And the only way to have a relationship with God, the only way to have everlasting life and have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ alone. There is absolutely no other way. In fact, Jesus tells us himself, and he's very clear, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one no one, no exceptions come to the Father except through me. No one, no exceptions. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and then literally and physically rose back from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be, 100% God, 100% man, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sin. It is only through that Jesus can we be saved. Now, if you uh, have not been here for the last few weeks, uh, you might be thinking, um, you know, I've got some questions about some of that, or maybe even all of that. Uh, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, there's, there's a lot more to be said there, because you really went over that kind of fast. Well, the good news is, we've covered this in, in the last five weeks, and what we did is we took all these messages, and we've already uploaded them to our SoundCloud page or to our church website, either one of them, and you can go there and you can listen to all those messages and get all caught up, just don't do it right now, okay? I mean, even if you had headphones on, that's cool. Just listen to this one, okay? But uh, for your convenience, we put those things on, on the website, and we put the address in your bulletin so you can take that home with you, so you don't have to write that down. Um, but um, with all of that, with all of that, this week we're going to wrap this series up, and, and as I said, this series is about the essential things that we need to believe as, as Christians and, and the foundational elements of our faith and the things that we that we need to build our, our faith on, the, the, the elements that we build our faith on in the entire structure of our lives that are based on these beliefs. And without these essential elements that we've talked about, our faith begins to lose stability. Uh, without the essential components of our faith, uh, our faith will ev- eventually collapse in on itself under its own weight. And we will just simply, our faith becomes just another religion. Our faith and the life that we build on that faith at some point will fall apart without these essentials that we've talked about. And so it goes without saying that these foundational elements are, you know, that we're examining, like justification by faith and the nature of who Christ is and the historical reality of the resurrection and who Jesus is in history and and, and that Jesus is the only way to salvation. All of these things are critically, critically, critically important to the structure of our faith. They are absolutely indispensable to our faith. And, and, And it's on these truths that we build the rest of our faith in our lives. In fact, it's on these particular truths that the entire church itself is built on. And so, to this point in this series, we've been able to be, get clear about these essentials, and we've been able to provide a really good support for each one of those elements, um, and, and we've been able to establish a really solid framework you know, for a robust f- uh, faith in Jesus, and we really kind of laid a good groundwork for people to either come to 
know what it means to be a Christian and take steps to do that. Or for those who are already Christians, uh, we've been able in, in our conversation to strengthen the foundation of their faith. And so this point, we've really met the goals that we laid out early on in the beginning of this series. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing that we need to talk about. I mean, there's, there's lots more things that we can talk about. There's lots of things that we can talk about when it comes to theology, but for the sake of the scope of this series and as to the essential things that we need to believe, there's one more thing that we need to cover. And, and this one more element of what we believe um, is actually very uh, indispensable and it's actually very vital to the integrity of our faith. It is actually irreplaceable. In fact, even the foundational things that we've already talked about, that we spent five weeks talking about, they themselves begin to break down without this last element. In fact, if we consider Jesus the cornerstone of our faith and these essential things and the things that he taught, the foundation stones of our faith, this last thing that we need to talk about today is actually the mortar that holds it all together. It is the element that binds all these things together. And because of that, I cannot overstate the importance of this last component of faith that we're going to talk about. It's absolutely essential to our faith. And because it's so important, because it is so important uh, and it plays such a vital role in the integrity of our faith, and because it is the mortar that holds all this stuff together, and because it's that important, I firmly believe that this last truth, this last element about our faith is in fact ground zero for the battle that our culture and our, uh, and our uh, uh, world is waging against Christianity. It is the epicenter of the, the most intense and concentrated efforts uh, to undermine our faith. Okay, it is the focus of scholars and skeptics and pop psychologists and even novelists. And, and there's a concerted effort to undermine and discredit and impugn this last piece of our faith. And I'm not talking about the resurrection because we've already covered the resurrection and even though the resurrection is the lynch historical pin, you know, the lynch pin uh, in, in the center of history that we build our faith on, the resurrection isn't the focus of the most intense attacks on our faith anymore. Yeah, there are people who do attack the resurrection, okay, but, but they don't, but they don't attack it hardly anymore because they cannot disprove it by the evidence. In fact, we talked about this. The historical evidence points to the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead, Okay? The resurrection of Christ is the best explanation of all of the historical evidence. And frankly, it's the best attested to historical event in all of antiquity. People don't reject the resurrection because of the evidence. They reject the resurrection because they just simply decided that the supernatural is impossible. They have just decided based on their assumptions, that not on the evidence, that, 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 that somehow Jesus rising from the dead is just simply impossible. They simply reject the notion of the resurrection out of hand as impossible despite what the evidence actually says. And so scholars, instead of trying to disprove the resurrection in the, in the, as a historical event, they actually instead focus on this last element of our faith. And this last element of our faith has now become something that's not just attacked by the culture and our world around us. It's something that's undermined in some parts of the church as well, there are people who profess to follow Jesus who are also working to undermine this last component of our faith. And it's because of that, 
It's because that we're seeing many who call themselves not simply just slide on important doctrinal things like repentance and holiness and godliness. Um, they're actually beginning to get off center and, and move away from the essential elements of our faith that we've been talking about. In fact, there are many who say that they believe that Jesus, you know, they believe in Jesus, but they'll tell us that they believe that there's more than one way to God, okay? And many people will tell you that, 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 that if God's a loving God, you know, that they call themselves Christians, they'll say, if God's a loving God, then hell can't possibly exist. And many who profess Christ will tell you that uh, it's not just about what you believe, it's also about how you behave. And there are others who will tell you that, um, that they don't believe that Jesus Jesus was really actually God, okay? And there are some Christians who will say, well, he's God, but he wasn't actually really a man. And there are some even will say that the resurrection probably wasn't a real, literal event in history. That was a spiritual event, okay? It wasn't something that happened in the real world. It happened in the spiritual world. And, and, and they'll say things like, well, it doesn't have to literally be true for it to be spiritually true. See, there are some that believe that the truth itself is, is, is something that's fluid and evolving and flexible flexible, um, you know, that, that, that our truth is based on our background and experience and the, and, and the corporate experience of, of, of our culture, uh, that the truth is subjective, that the truth isn't firm and fixed on these essential elements, you know, that which we build our faith. You know, they, they think that the truth is nebulous and changing, and all of this, all of this stems from this growing mo uh, movement to undermine the essential elements of our faith. But... At the heart of the Christian faith, and when I say that, I'm talking about Orthodox Christianity, okay? What Christians have historically believed from the, from the beginning of the church, okay? Uh, the, the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart, is this immutable truth. The fact that the truth itself is fixed and objective. That there's a fixed objective standard for truth. That, that the truth is firm, it's fixed. There's a reference point for the truth. That the, the truth isn't fluid, it isn't flexible. Okay, that the truth isn't relative. The truth is instead is definite and objective, and because the truth is established by God Himself, the truth is established because God, by His very nature, is truth. Jesus said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." God is the embodiment of truth. Truth is what He is. Truth is what has its origins and is permanently anchored to God. Truth is objective and knowable because God reveals to us the truth. You see, we all come in contact with the truth. We all come in contact with the truth because God, the embodiment of truth, reveals it to us. God reveals the truth to us in two very clear and distinct ways. The first way, number one, God reveals to us is what's called general revelation. General revelation was where God himself uses creation to reveal who he is. Okay? And we can learn a lot about God, and we can learn a lot about, about the nature of truth by studying creation itself. Even Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God had shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, including truth, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has revealed himself to the world in creation itself. Objective truth can be found in creation because God has revealed it that way. 
Okay? God has revealed himself in general revelation. And the second way that God reveals himself to us is called, uh, uh, in the truth of who he is. He does so through what's called uh, special revelation. Okay? God just didn't simply just you know, make himself known in creation. God has actively revealed himself to mankind in special discernible ways. God has revealed himself to us through history, through different people. God has spoken directly to people. God has performed miracles in front of people. God has even went so far in various ways to be visibly present in front of people. The most uh, important of which is the incarnation when Jesus came into the world. God actively revealed himself in the nature of truth to the world through Jesus Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, Jesus okay, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, God revealed himself to us in Christ. And so, with, and so throughout history, God has revealed himself in special ways to lots of people. And these people, by God's own direction, then recorded for us his active special revelation. They have recorded for us the truth about God and creation and salvation. They have recorded the truth, and that truth has been preserved and, 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 and collected together and handed down to us. And the truth over time has become known as this, the Bible. Okay? The Bible is the record of God's special revelation to us. The Bible records for us the truth about who God is and His nature. It reveals to us who God is and what He's about. In fact, we know what we know about God and creation and salvation, not because we have some spiritual, mysterious uh, insight, and not because you know, we have cultural folk tales who, who help us to recount history. We know what we know about God okay, and these other things because He has revealed it to us in His his written word. And we as Christians from the very beginning have believed and maintained still to this day that this written record and collection of writings is in fact the very word of God to mankind. This Bible is God's own word to us and because of that the Bible is accurate on the nature of truth and authoritative on all matters and how we live and how we practice our faith. And that is an essential, central claim that we as Christians make. That this is, in fact, God's very own word to us. That this is alone and, and nothing else is the written word of, of God. And, and this is the essential truth about um, the Bible. It's the essential truth about the Bible being God's word. That our culture and, and our world seeks to undermine this is ground zero because our culture does not believe that this is the word of God. It does not believe that it's actually God's own revelation of himself to mankind. And many of our, our culture believe that, that this is just simply a religious book compiled by men. That this, is, this book might contain some truth. It might even have some wise words. It might even you know, have some spiritual helpfulness. It might even talk about some people in history. But for them, this is not God's unique word to us. Now, 
Some will concede that the Bible might record some things about God's activity, and it might even record some of his words, but the Bible isn't really all God's word. It's, it's, it's instead a compilation of both God and what, what men have to say, and so it's hard to decipher what is what. It's hard to decipher what God actually says and means and what mankind actually says and means. And there are others who, you know, many who claim to be Christians who believe that the Bible really isn't a historical document, but it's a collection of spiritual writings that communicate the spiritual truths about God. And the events in the Bible aren't really, you know, true events, okay? That they're actually useful myths to help to communicate deeper spiritual truths. And so other so-called Christians will say the Bible that we have today is partly God's word, like the Old Testament, obviously. And, and, and some of the New Testament is God's word, but not all the New Testament, okay? Not all the New Testament is divine and inspired, you know, because the New Testament obviously was written later. In fact, I know a former pastor who says that since, since Jesus is the word, okay, all we really need to know is what he says, okay? And, and that we can basically ignore everything else in the New Testament except what he says, right? Especially the writings of Paul. You know, there are some who call themselves red-letter Christians because of the red letters in the Bible of what Jesus says. Okay, they think that the only thing that's inspired and important in the New Testament is what you find in the red letters, the words of Jesus, okay? And they don't give any credibility to the teachings of Paul or Peter or James or John, especially if these teachings and writings contradict their personal beliefs. Um, and this is very popular. This is a very popular view among those who seek to downplay uh, God's standards of holiness and God's standards of, of righteousness and, and, and repentance. All right? um, they, they downplay that, you know, those people who, who claim to follow God that, that say those things. You see, this element of our faith, the Bible, is in fact God's word. And it is ground zero because the authority of the Bible as the word of God when it is undermined, if, if that happens, then the truth once again becomes flexible and it becomes relative. If in fact, you know, the truth in, in a sense becomes unknowable. Because if the Bible isn't God's word, and I mean fully, completely God's word, then how can you know what the truth is? How can you know the truth about God? How can we know the truth about sin? How can we know uh, the truth about our, our, our hopeless condition? Okay? How can we know the truth about how to be saved? How can we know the truth about how we relate to God and relate to other people? If this is not God's authoritative word, then how can we know what is true? Well, the fact is that if it's not God's revealed word, it's impossible to know. Because if it's not God's revealed world, then the essential things about our faith that we have been talking about really are meaningless. The sacrifice of Christ is, becomes meaningless. The hopeless nature of our condition is meaningless. The open door for all people to have a relationship with God through Christ alone, by faith alone, is meaningless. meaningless. And because of this, these things becoming meaningless, if that's the truth, then there really is no hope to hold on to. So you have to understand that there's no real hope if these things are meaningless. Because if this isn't God's word then the truth is not knowable. It isn't something that you can really know and discern. So the truth becomes relative based on a person's experience and performance, I mean, preferences. The truth becomes about me and, and my likes and dislikes. It becomes about me and my own personal standards. And the truth is, that's exactly what the world wants. 
That's exactly what the world wants. It wants it to be about a relative truth that we make up. The world and our culture does not want a clear point of reference. The world and our culture wants the truth to be relative. That is why they teach it to our children. Okay, that's why the first two classes usually college freshmen take are Biology 101, where they go in and they find out or you know, that they're taught that, that, that all of life is basically happened by accident and chance. And then they take Philosophy 101, where they find out that truth is relative and God maybe is dead. Okay? They want the truth to be relative. So they, they might as well believe what they want to believe and think what they want to think and then, more importantly, do what they want to do because there's no standard of truth. That is what the world wants. And increasingly, because of pressure from our culture and because of our desire by many of us to ignore what the Bible teaches about sin and what the, the Bible says about God's wrath and His judgment, there are an increasing number who claim to be Christians who, who refuse to accept all of this as God's revealed word to us. And so there's an absolute, this is an absolute you know, important doctrine for us to hold on to because the most important question really we can ask is, is the Bible in its entirety God's own word to us? Is this divine inspired? Is this his word revealed to us? Because if it's not, then we're wasting our time here. I'll be the first to tell you that. Hey, if it's not, then we're wasting our time. We might as well go look somewhere else for the truth. But if it is, okay, if this is his word, it is true then we must be careful to learn what it says and then do what it says to do. Because Jesus says, John 13, 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so with that, in the time remaining, I want to talk to you whether or not this is God's word. I want for us to get really clear about this essential element of our faith. Now, I'm going to admit that this is a really, 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 really big topic. It's a big subject, okay? It has lots of components to it, and there are lots of pieces of theology that, that go along with us, okay? And there's more to cover here today than we can absolutely cover, but the good news is a great deal of the theology about the reliability and the... Um, um, uh, of the Bible, it, it has been covered in previous in a previous series. In fact, the series is titled uh, "World of Doubt." In that series, we spent three weeks talking about the accuracy, reliability, and the theology of the Bible. And you can listen to those those three uh, parts of that series on our church website or SoundCloud. Um, but so, with that said, there's no real need for us to refresh all of that stuff. Okay. But instead, what I want to do is I really want to just take our time and I want to focus. I want to focus on today, not what man has to say about the Bible. I want to focus on what God himself says about the Bible. You see, what I say about the Bible is absolutely irrelevant. What you think and say about the Bible is irrelevant. What the world says about the Bible, what any man says about the Bible is irrelevant. The important thing, the only thing that matters, is what God himself says about the Bible. So what does God say? What does God say about this book? Is it just a collection of writings? Or do we, you know, or can we, you know, know that this is his word? Is it just a collection of stories and wisdom literature? Or is it more than that? Is this Bible, you know, partly his word, or is the whole thing is it his word? This is what I want to focus on today. This is this is what I want to answer. Does God, is this God's word to us? Well, to begin with. To help answer this question, the central figure that we need to understand in this Bible, in both the Old and New Testament, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central theme, the central figure of the entire Bible. He's the central theme of the Old Testament, and the, and the, the Old Testament points to the future. 
uh, about Jesus. And then he is the central theme of the New Testament as it looks back upon the life and the work of Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the central theme. And so Jesus is the key to answering this question because the Bible really, for all intents and purposes, is all about Jesus. And so let's begin in looking at what Jesus himself has to say about the Bible. You see, Jesus said of the Old Testament in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying that the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch, which are also known as the law, he's saying that the truth that is contained in them will outlive heaven and earth. And not one detail, not one tiny detail will pass away until the law is accomplished. Now, again, there's more in this one little text to, to discuss than we can actually get to today. But suffice it to say, in our limited time together, that Jesus has a really high regard for these books of the Bible. In fact, he said that they will outlive heaven and earth. Okay, And that until heaven and earth pass away, no tiny part of the law will pass away. And then John said in 1035, Jesus says, I mean, Jesus said this, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. Okay, well, how is that possible? If these books are simply the thoughts and the writings and the musings of men, okay, how can they outlive their own creation? How can they not be broken if they're just words of men? Well, you see, the reason why the law won't pass away and why Scripture can't be broken is because the law was given by God. The Old Testament is God's own word. Jesus affirms that it's God's own word. In fact, Jesus quotes almost every book of the Bible, every book of the Old Testament. Uh, look at, in fact, look at me how Jesus prayed for his believers. He said, he said sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, your word is the truth. Jesus fully understood that the Old Testament to be the very word of God and that it was the truth. Okay? That's exactly what Jesus understood the Old Testament to be. It was the very word of God and that it was the truth. And more than that, Jesus knew the word of God. The Old Testament was all about him. In fact, in John 5.39, Jesus says to a group of religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life because they knew that the scriptures were, were God's word and they were searching and studying them. So he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. See, Jesus tells them very plainly, the Old Testament, you know, the books that they're looking into for salvation, testify about him. The law is about Jesus. The, the, uh, the, uh, the temple, the, the whole design of the temple and what that means and all those, those, uh, those symbols are about Jesus. The prophecies about the Messiah are all about Jesus. Je he knew that the entire Old Testament was about him. And he told us that. Now you might think, well, that's great. That's the Old Testament then. I mean, we can concede that. We can say that that's God's word. But what about the New Testament? How do we know that it is God's word? How do we know that the New Testament is the word of God? Well, there's a lot to talk about here, but really we can start in the same place. We can start in the same place, which is Jesus. You see, in, in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, this is interesting because he's using an analogy about his words that almost word for word is the same analogy that he used about God's word, because he said in Matthew 5.18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law. And then in, the, in this text he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Well, you see, 
Jesus being God in the flesh tells us his word will not pass away. His word will endure. Well, what's his word? Well, I mean, Jesus didn't physically write it down, okay? He didn't like stop and go, hey, let me get a piece of paper out and write that down, okay? So what is he talking about? What word is he talking about that's going to endure? Well, we know about his wor- the words of Jesus because they were recorded... They were recorded by eyewitnesses who were there with Jesus. Okay, the, those are the words that, that he was talking about. He said the things. He said that some of the things that he's talking about, those things were actually written down by people who were there. In fact, the first four books of the New Testament are eyewitness accounts of the life and the work of in the words of Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew. And, and John were written by Jesus' original disciples named Matthew and John. And Mark and Luke um, were written by people who interviewed the original eyewitnesses. In fact, Mark is based on the testimony provided by Peter, again, one of the other original disciples. And then Luke, a historian, a contemporary of all of these apostles, and also the, the apostle Paul, interviewed just about everyone. And not only did he write his uh, narrative about Jesus in the book of Luke. He also wrote about the early church and the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And so the Gospels okay, are historical eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did and said. And what the book of Acts records is how Jesus left the earth and how the Holy Spirit came and how the Holy Spirit moved into the church and it grew the church and how the Spirit of God spoke through the early founders of the church. And these books record God revealing himself through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, similar to the books of the Old Testament. In fact, these are God's own words. Now you might think, well, okay, the Gospels in. Okay, we can say the Gospels and maybe even the book of Acts, but what about the letters? I mean, how do we know that those are God's word? I mean, two-thirds of the New Testament are written, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament are, are letters written by one guy. I mean, are they God's word? I mean, there are some who call themselves Christians who will say no. That, 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 that what he wrote or, or what the other guys wrote are not word because they, because some call themselves Christians, they, they say that it's, it's impossible, that, that the only thing that really is relevant is what the gospel says. But let's take a look. You see, um, the book of James was written by Jesus' own brother. Okay? And he was converted uh, after Christ rose from the dead and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then he was, not only that, was martyred for his faith. And his letter was the very first book of the New Testament written. It was the very first book that was written. It predates all of the Gospels and every other letter. Okay? And then you have the three letters by John in the book of Revelation. And all of them written by the Apostle John, who was with Jesus from the very beginning. He was in Jesus' inner circle. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Okay? And in fact, there's probably nobody closer on a human level than John was, except maybe Peter. And, and he wrote a couple letters himself. And we have those in the Bible. And it, what's interesting is Peter, what he has to say about the Apostle Paul in one of his letters. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Peter says this. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and what he's talking about, he, you know, he's telling them that they're waiting for heaven and earth, the new heaven and the earth, okay, when, when God finally comes back. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord. Lord is salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. 
as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Then he goes on to say, there are some things in them, in his letters, that are hard to understand. Okay, so stop right here. Even Peter, okay, even Peter said that, that Paul's theology is hard to understand, okay? So if you struggle with the book of Romans, it's okay. Even Peter struggled with that, all right? But he says these are some, there's, there's some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures, okay? Now here's the thing you have to understand about that. When people, Peter says that, that people twist around Paul, uh, the words of Paul like they do other scriptures, what he's saying here is that Paul's words are scriptures. They are indeed holy scriptures. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, that's a stretch, okay? I mean, him simply saying scriptures doesn't mean holy scriptures. He could mean writings by that word because that's what scriptures are. They're just writings, okay? Well, no, actually not. You see, the Greek word for scripture that Peter uses here is this word right here. It's pronounced graphe. Okay, graphe. And this word graphe is used 51 times in the New Testament. And in every single instance, without exception, it is used to mean holy scriptures. Every time it is used, the context makes it very clear that whoever is using the word is talking about holy scripture, God's word, God's inerrant word. In fact, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them that you have eternal life and it is they who bear witness about me. The word scripture Jesus uses here is the exact same word that Peter uses, graphe. Okay? And so what Peter is saying is that Paul's letters is that they are on par with the scriptures of the Old Testament. Okay? And that, that's why Paul's writings were so widely circulated. That's why we have them. That's why they were so widely collected and widely read. Because the apostles in the early church viewed Paul's letters as holy scripture. They knew that he was inspired by God to write them. And look what Paul himself says about scripture. Okay, and we finally actually get to 2 Timothy 3, um, in, in beginning in verse 16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. He says, all scripture, graphe, all scriptures are breathed out by God. Now some translations say that, it, that all scripture is inspired by God, but it's the same point. Okay, All script, scripture is is the very word of God. All scripture, including the New Testament, is God's very word. And Paul and Peter knew that. And they knew that the testimony that they were sharing about Jesus was in fact the word of God. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, the apostles knew that the gospel, you know, what they were sharing, isn't simply just them explaining Jesus. Okay, They knew that they were sharing the gospel, they were sharing God's special revelation to the world. Okay, That, that, that the words they were using were not simply their own, they're the words of God. In fact, even Peter explains this in 2 Peter where he says, No prophecy has ever produced by the will of men, but men spoken from God as they were carried 
carried along by the Holy Spirit. These men were moved by God himself to speak and write down God's special revelation concerning Christ. And every word and every scripture and every book that we have in this Bible is breathed out by God, which means the Bible is in fact God's direct special revelation to us. It is authoritatively his word. And because of that, you can believe for certain what it says and you can hold fast to the foundational elements that we've been talking about over the last several weeks and also the hope that comes with that belief. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. As far as what we need to believe at the foundational level, as Christians, what we need to believe about the Bible is simply this. We must believe that the entire Bible is in fact God's accurate and reliable word to us. You don't have to use fancy words, okay? But we must believe that this entire Bible is in fact God's accurate and reliable word to us. The Bible is in fact God's word. We must believe that. Now there's some who people who say, I've heard lots and lots of arguments on this. I've heard lots of discussions on this. Some people say, well you don't really need to believe that to be saved. And I'm going to be honest with you, I struggle with that idea because I don't know how that could be possible. Because if you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, or you don't believe that the entire Bible is the word of God, how can you trust what you believe to save you? Because if the Bible is not God's word, it's not entirely God's word, then what part of it is true? Which, show me, right? What part of this is, is true? If the Bible isn't accurate or reliable, then how can we know the truth? Well, the answer is you can't. That's why believing the Bible is authoritative and accurate. And it's the word of God is essential to our faith. Okay, not only is it essential to our faith, God himself, through Christ and through his uh, the apostles and through the Holy Spirit, tells us it is his own word. And so, wrapping up this series, what I want to do is I want to reiterate that believing in the Bible as the word of God is essential to our faith. It's essential, an essential element to our faith. It's the mortar that holds everything together. And wrapping up this series and knowing that, you know, and knowing this truth, actually us coming to the place where we know this truth about that, that, that this is the very word of God, the question becomes is what do you do with what you know about this truth? I mean, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what do you do about this? You see, knowing should cause you to do something, right? It should urge you on. Knowing this Bible is the Word of God, you know, is great, but that just knowing is not going to help you move forward. It's not going to transform your life. It's not until you do something about it that the change occurs. So what do you need to do? You just need to read it, right? You know? And you've heard me say that like a, a, a Probably a thousand times before, and guess what? You'll probably hear me say it ten thousand times more before I'm done. Okay, um, but but the reality is, you need to read it, and you need to engage God in conversation by reading His Word. You need to read not only the Word of God, but you also need to go beyond that. You need to begin to make it a part of your life. It needs to become who you are inside, and you do that by meditating on the Word of God and memorizing the Word of God and studying the Word of God. You need to actively study the Word of God. Now, you might say to me, "Well, Sherman, you know what? That's great." But I don't know how. I have no idea how to study the word. Well, that's good. Uh, because I actually have good news for you. Um, there is a solution. In fact, once you watch this. Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback Church and author of Purpose Driven Life. 
And I've got a confession to make. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, and I listened to my dad preach sermons all the time growing up. And actually, my dad was on the staff of a seminary, and I heard more sermons than you could imagine growing up. And so many times I would write over into the side of my Bible as I was taking notes, YBH, YBH, yes, but how, yes, but how. And one of the things that I was always confused about was people would tell me what to do, but not tell me how to do it. For instance, all my life growing up, I was taught you need to study your Bible, but nobody ever taught me how. I didn't know how to do a character study. I didn't know how to do a word study. I didn't know how to study a chapter or a verse. I didn't know how to do a synthesis of a book. I didn't know how to study a theme through scripture or how to do a character study. And so it was very frustrating. I'd take my Bible, I'd read it, and, and I'd do the best I could, but then I would just put it away and give up. Our churches, your church and our church, and thousands of other churches across America are going to do a spiritual growth emphasis together called 40 Days in the Word. During that six-week period, we're going to learn the Word of God. I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible for yourself. Your pastor is going to teach you how to love the Word of God through messages on the weekend and questions like, where did we get the Bible? Where did it come from? How do we know it's true? Where did we get the manuscripts? and we're going to live the Word of God. Now to be a part of this, you're going to need to join a small group. And if you're not in a small group, your pastor and your church leaders can help you figure out how to start a small group. I'm not asking you to join one for the rest of your life. I'm asking you to join one for six weeks so we can study 40 days in the Word together. It's going to be a great time. God bless you. Right on. So I want you guys to mark your calendars. April the 3rd, it is the Sunday right after Easter, okay? And so we're kicking off this uh, church-wide campaign called 30 Days in the Word. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend that six weeks intensely focused on learning about how to study the Bible, okay? We as a church are going to use all of our time here on Sunday mornings and all of our time in our small groups together to spend six weeks together learning how to study the Bible. And we're going to uh, we're going to solve that problem. If you say, I don't know how to study the Bible, well, then guess what? You need to be here because we're going to fix that problem for you, okay? And so uh, to help you with this, what we're going to do is we're going to provide everyone during that campaign one of these. This is a 40 days in the Word workbook, okay? And this workbook is not just for Sunday mornings. It does have stuff for Sunday mornings. And it's not just for your small group time, but it's also actually about every day during that six weeks because it has daily activities and daily devotional time that will help you to really dig in and study the Word of God. And we're going to provide everybody in the church a copy of this for free. Now, before we get there, um, i got three things I just want to ask of you. Number one, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you, if you're not in a small group all right, right now, then today before you leave, just go back there to the back table all right, and sign up to be in a small group. And this is not a forever thing. This is a six-week thing. Okay. Now, we don't have all the small groups set up yet, okay? but just, just put your name, your phone number, or your contact information and what nights a week works, work best for you. Okay? And then if you would, you know, if you're willing to host a small group just for six weeks, it's really, really easy. If you can push play on a DVD player, you can do this. Okay? Um, but if, if you want to, to host a small group, it's really, really simple. Just put, yes, I'll host a small group. Okay? And, and the thing is, is, you don't need to know exactly how it all works right this second, and you don't even know what, need to know what group you're going to be in. All you need to do today is just get committed to the idea that you're going to get plugged into a small group. Now, the second thing, okay, 
um, that we need to talk about is these books right here about 12 bucks each, okay? And, and we're prepared like we did last year for everyone to get one, okay? And so what we're doing is we're going to order 100 copies of these things just like we did last year, okay? Because we're, every, we're committed for everybody to, who, who wants one of these will get one of these, all right? But we're going to ask if, if it's in your ability uh, and if God moves your heart to do so, okay, we're asking if you want to, if God moves your heart that you would partner with us to help offset the cost of this to the church budget. And, and really, it's a real simple thing. If you just want to just pay for your own, you just want to pay like 12 bucks, and then guess what? Then we've, that's one less the church actually covers. And last year, we actually had several people who actually ended up covering more than that. And before we knew it, all the books ended up being paid for just out of people's generosity, which was really cool to see how God worked that, that out. And we were just really grateful that for that because we were able to spend that money on other things. And so um, if there's something you can partner with us on, again, we're going to ask you uh, to do that and, and you know, um, we'd be grateful. Now understand, if you don't have the 12 bucks, we're not even going to sweat it, okay? It's not even like an issue for us, okay? Because we're convinced that this is going to help so much that we're going to give everybody a copy. One way or the other, you are getting a copy of this. Now, if you can't help with this today, um, you can actually help if you want to today by putting a check in an envelope and giving it to Keith back there before you leave, or you can give online, or you can get just right from your phone. Just dial the number 77977, you know, and then in the message where when you text, you just put FBC Boron, you will get a link back. You just click that link and follow it through and you can use your card to um, to pay for that. And all you have to do is just under the categories, instead of like general fund, just make it make sure you put special and uh, you know, off we go. Now the last thing I need for you is I'm gonna ask that you join us in praying for this campaign. Okay. Last year's campaign had a huge impact on our church. And it had a huge impact on individual lives of people. I've seen it with my own eyes and I've heard the stories. Okay? There are people that you know that are in this church whose lives have been, they have been completely changed by the direction that, uh, that, that that campaign took them. And our church as, as a whole is better for it. And so I'm asking that you would pray as a entire congregation that you would pray that you that our hearts would be prepared for this and that you pray that this would go smoothly and that you'd pray that God would prepare my heart because there's a lot of work that's going to go into this getting there and that you'd prepare, pray most importantly that that our congregation would then through this series fall deeply and madly in love with God's word okay and I'm just going to ask that you pray for that until April the 3rd so number one sign up for a small group number two if you can help you know pay for a book and number three um um, pray for this upcoming event. Now, <clears throat> as we finally wrap this up, um, it is my hope that this series has helped you to grow in your faith um, and that your faith has been strengthened by this series. And, and, and if you're not a Christ follower, that, that at least you know what basic Christianity is about, what Christians actually believe at the foundational level. You know, and, and, and what you believe or what you understand is that we, we believe that we are all sinners, helpless to save ourselves, and that we all need salvation. And that salvation is available only to us because Jesus, fully God and fully man, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and paid the penalty for our sins. And that same Jesus was literally physically raised back to life, proving that he is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is save us from our sins. And all we need to do is believe in that Jesus, and that Jesus alone, and we will be saved. And we know that that's the truth because God's very own word tells us so. Let me pray for you. 
Lord God, I thank you, Father, that um, for your word. I thank you for the beauty of your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. I'm just grateful, Lord God, that, that your word speaks to us and ministers to us. I'm, I'm grateful that your word says that it's a, a, that's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is not something that's static. It's not just words collected on a page. It's not just literature. It's something that's alive and breathing, and it works, and it changes us. It affects us. You know, It's transforming. It's growing in us, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that we would just take it all seriously, that, that every bit of these foundational things, they become who we are. We'd, be, we'd know them and we'd be able to share them with people. We'd be able to tell people the truth about your word, that it is your word, that it is, in fact, your accurate, reliable word, that we can trust every bit of it. Lord, and, and that, that, we, that we have this condition, that we are sinners, that we need to be saved, that we can share that with people, and we can boldly share that and declare that. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Help us to proclaim that. Help us to be a people who just don't hear it, but do it. That we go out and we go and, and make disciples of, of the nations. We go out and make disciples of our neighbors. That we would be willing to love and, and hold people and, and, and invite them here. You know, and that we would just create opportunities like next week, um, Football Sunday, that we create unique opportunities to bring people to faith in you. But beyond all the stuff that we do, it is your word, Lord God, that changes lives. It is your word that we proclaim, and it's that proclamation that that falls on people's hearts. And if their heart is ready, Lord, they will be changed. And I pray that, Lord, we take that all seriously. And I pray that you'd raise up in this place a congregation who love you so much that they would storm the gates of hell and that we would change this community from the inside out. We, we love you. We thank you and we praise you and we pray that you'd meet everybody's needs today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org and please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.